Hello, and welcome to Small Town Gospel Podcast. I'm Alana. Today you'll be listening to part one of a two-part series on different English Bible translations. Today's episode will be more of a history and terminology lesson that hopefully will set us up for next week's discussion on how all of this applies to our everyday life here in a small town. We hope you enjoy, and as always, if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at smalltowngospel at gmail.com or on our social media platforms. Thanks! episode of Small Town Gospel Podcast. I'm Alana, here with Alex, and today we're talking about different English translations of the Bible. Yeah, it's good to be with you today, and uh, we've got a few people actually uh, request this specific topic, and it is certainly relevant um, because we Everything we believe about God's word, uh, that it is inerrant, that it is uh, sufficient, that it is the, the source of authority for things in uh, the Christian life, we better have a pretty good, clear-eyed understanding of the Bible that we hold in our hands and how it came to be in our hands and just a, by way of a means of appreciation, uh, understanding that the Bibles that we have in our possession today are the result of a ton, not only of uh, academic hard work and translation and missionary effort, but uh, of bloodshed. Mm. So we have our Bibles because many, many people gave their lives uh, to spread uh, the gospel through the spread of uh, scripture. So Alana is kind of our resident expert on the history of it. So she'll be leading this first part of the discussion. And then I will be uh, kind of leading the charge on the second part where we get into the uh, issues um, when it comes to modern uh, the modern effort of translating and the philosophy of translations and uh, the implementation in local churches of that. So, Alana, if you would kind of lead the discussion through a uh, flyover view of the history. Yeah, so I'm just going to be covering uh, the, I guess, what we would consider the main English Bible translations that we see in our uh, predominant circles. So, KJV. NKJV, ESV, NASB, NIV. Uh, There's obviously so many more translations other than that, Uh, but I figured I would just share the history of what I know and what I'm more like comfortable with. If anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to us and ask us about other translations. Uh, But the first predominant English translator was Williams Tyndale. And he was the one that began the work of translating the Old Testament into Old English in about 1525. And over the next 25 years, he would continue to work on translating the New Testament. And as he translated, there are some controversial translation choices that he made, but his work was very, very diligent and very thorough at the time. 
and his work uh, influenced majorly what would be known as the King James Version later. So in 1535, the version called the Great Bible was published, and it was the majority of Tyndale's work up to that point. He hadn't finished all of the New Testament, uh, and it also had uh, catechisms and a few other things in it that we do not have in our current Bibles. And it had a fun little tribute page at the beginning of the Bible for King Henry the Eighth, who was the <laughs> King of England at the time. It had his picture, and uh, that was the start of the Bible, uh, which is just so interesting. It then, is interesting oh, just in general. Sorry to interrupt our expert here, but uh, the way that political shenanigans... <laughs> Uh, intermingle with uh, you know it's it's obviously sacred and uh, holy and reverent Mm -hmm. and yet God works in and through some pretty messy political situations to to bring uh, God's word to us so anyway keep going (laughs) we will continue to see that in pretty much every translation there is so uh, after the 1539 great bible was published Between the years of 1557 and 1575, the Geneva Bible was translated and published. And this translation was uh, brought forth throughout the Protestant Reformation period. And it was then used by the pilgrims who traveled over to America. And that was the version of the Bible that they used to found the American colonies which I thought was a really interesting fact. And then in 1604 was when the commissioning of the King James Version of the Bible began. So the commission came from the King of England at the time, who was King James, hence King James Version. (laughs) And... He put together this team of theologians and professors and uh, other really smart guys, and they then worked until the first edition of the King James Version was published in 1611, but then there were many revisions the next hundred years after that um, that were all known as the King James Version. We skip forward a few a few years to 1885 where we see the first major major English revision of the King James version which was called the English Revised Bible and the wa- the way I say English is because it was by England that like England revised it so it was an English language uh and then in 1901 we see the American Standard Version being published, and it was the first major American revision of the King James Version. Uh, And if you're looking at uh, American history during this time, the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, there's just like this major thing happening in America where America's being uh, settled and becoming their own Uh, country away from uh, the British government and 
as history plays out, it's just really interesting to see this race, not only in politics, but also in Bible translations. Mm. So right after the English uh, made their revision of the King James Version, then the Americans, right after that, (laughs) came out with their own revision of the King James Version. It's like the uh, space race, but with the Bible. (laughs) Yeah, which was just so interesting that... um, This was happening at the same time as, like, major historical events that we study in school. Uh, So then, uh, in 1952, there was a revision, it's called the Revised Standard Version, which is the revision of that ASV that we talked about a little before, and its goal... uh, was to preserve the English Revised Version while also making the language usable in public worship and private worship, meaning that it would be relatable to those listening and those studying. Uh, So then, this is a long-winded story. In 1955, the commissioning of the NIV Bible began by a man named Howard Long, and his quest was fueled by his passion for sharing the gospel. So he was sharing the gospel with people who had no religious background, and he wanted a version, a translation of the Bible that would be written in a more contemporary language that could be used across denominational use and in uh, evangelistic use that people could just, common people who had no biblical background could relate to. And so his NIV version was published and distributed in 1965, but he began his work in 1955. Then we get to 1963, where the New American Standard Bible was commissioned. And we talked about the American Standard Version just a little bit before this. This is obviously a revision of that. And... It was officially published, so the work began in 1963, it was officially published in 1971. And then in 1982, the new King James Version arrived on the streets, and its goal was to stay as close to the King James Version as possible, while also updating to a more uh, advanced or modern English language. And so... Uh, This was also because there had been so many other uh, versions, translations coming out that they wanted to take the moment to go back to the roots Mm. while also appealing to all of the reasons why all these other versions were being made, which I thought was interesting. Uh, They kind of like said, wait a minute, (laughs) Uh, and went back to the KJV. And then in the 1990s, the idea for the English Standard Version began when the president of Crossway Ministries saw a need for a literal translation using uh, different like Christian scholars who had been studying the original texts. And they came together and they used translators and scholars and pastors and all of these really smart guys, to take the 1971 Revised Standard Version and create 
the English Standard Version, which was then published and released in 2001. So there's our flyover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and uh, obviously there's uh, a whole history before Tyndale ever showed up on the scene of uh, the different views of uh, whether even the common man should have the Bible in their own language. And um, there's there's just a whole lot going on there. But for our English-speaking American Christian experience, that's, that's a really good uh, overview. And uh, gives some appreciation for where we're at uh, today. And so... As we get into now, um, in 2021, some of the relevant things to consider kind of behind the scenes. So so we just saw uh, the history of of where all these translations come from. Now uh, I'll lead kind of a discussion about what goes on in the meeting rooms. There's a whole bunch of uh, red tape and discussion and debate that goes on uh, anytime a new Bible comes out it represents thousands and thousands of man hours um, uh, of preparation and study and uh, debate um, on every single uh, passage and so uh, I'll discuss some of the those discussions and uh, what leads to the translations that we end up with so one of uh, at the very foundation of these uh, processes is uh, manuscripts and um, this whole field of study and inquiry called uh, textual criticism. And what that is, is it's the uh, attempt, the scholarly attempt and effort to best identify what the original manuscripts of the Bible said. Uh, Keep in mind that everything that Orthodox Christians believe about the Bible, uh, we believe them about the original autographs. So what the Apostle John, for instance, actually sat down and wrote in his gospel, in his three letters, and in the book of Revelation, uh, that document that he touched and wrote on with his own hands um, that is what we believe is inerrant. That is what we believe is sufficient. That is what we believe uh, is the very word of God. Um, so in a sense, um, what we believe that about um, is true of the Bibles that we have in our possession only insofar as they accurately uh, convey what was originally communicated. So textual criticism is the academic effort to most accurately uh, preserve and uh, disseminate the, uh, the original manuscripts. And so there's essentially uh, three general approaches to this process. Keep in mind the way that we find this is through uh, biblical archaeology. So they do digs and they find these ancient documents. And uh, the three primary methods of textual criticism 
There is what's called textus receptus. There is the majority text, and there is the uh, critical method. Uh, textus receptus is essentially the effort to uh, find the uh, earliest and best original uh, sources, get as close to the original as you possibly can. And so uh, if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm -hmm. that was a really big deal because it was, they found um, more manuscripts and earlier manuscripts than they've ever found before. And uh, so it's basically if, uh, if a major event happened in your local town and there were all these eyewitnesses who wrote down in their journals about it um, and uh, that uh, they wrote it like the next day, the, the philosophy behind Texas Receptus would be uh, the belief that that would be the most reliable rather than um, what a whole bunch of people had to say that wrote, wrote it down uh, 50 years after the fact. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's Texas Receptus. You're trying to get as early as you possibly can um, in the original languages to when the event happened. The majority text method is literally if, if textual criticism or manuscripts were a, were a pure democracy, it would be uh, the majority text. So literally, if you find a manuscript, that manuscript gets a vote. And so whatever manuscript has the most votes, like whatever manuscript um, there's, uh, is most commonly discovered out there, uh, is regarded as the right uh, the correct manuscript. Uh, the problem with that is uh, the way that these things happen is uh, there's the original document and then scribes copy it. And if you get one mistake early on, then every copy of that mistake is counted. Hmm. And so uh, there are currently no major translations that use the majority text exclusively hmm. as their method of translation. The third method is known as the critical, or you could also call it the, the eclectic method, which is an attempt. Um, th this is what uh, New American Standard, NIV, ESV, uh, they use this approach uh, where it leans toward the textus receptus, but they also just try to account for uh, the different variables in the given situation. So uh, those are the three approaches. Um, our, uh, all of our um, translations that, that would be most common in our uh, church would be from this critical method. Uh, the King James would be uh, the major translation that uses the Textus Receptus exclusively. Um, and that gets into some of the reasons why uh, there's this notion out there um, of King James only-ism. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. Uh, so thank you for bearing with us <laughs> so far on the history and on kind of the technical stuff. Now just things that get a little bit more uh, interactive. So there's a philosophy. Once you kind of 
once a translator and a team of translators identifies what they want to do and and what uh, textual criticism method they're going to use in their translation, there then is a philosophy of translation. Um, and there, there's the range of formal equivalence, dynamic equivalence, and paraphrase. And so uh, formal equivalence would be uh, word order in, let's say, English and Spanish can be different. Mm -hmm. So a formal equivalence would be uh, if someone speaks a sentence in Spanish. Can you speak a sentence in Spanish? Oh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you lived in Phoenix. Come on. I can speak Spanish. It's not on pressure. Okay. Uh, anyways, let's say there's a sentence in Spanish and the word order is a little bit different than in English. A formal equivalence would translate that into English and it would sound funny in English. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't sound quite natural because it goes word for word, um, Spanish to English. And it, they, would, they would say, we want to most accurately, word for word, communicate what was originally said. And in the English, you have to do the work of figuring out kind of the sense or the feel of, of the sentence. Uh, dynamic equivalence would be much more, you, you say, um, if I ever could get you to do it, you speak a, a sentence in Spanish and then I uh, convey the vibe, yeah. the, like, the most free-flowing into English um, idea that you were just communicating, and it would be less, technically speaking, accurate um, in the original Spanish than it is uh, in, um, uh, if you were to take the formal equivalence. Paraphrase is literally just like, here's this whole story, and I'm going to kind of put it in my own words, and uh, the really big idea of the story uh, theoretically, if I'm a trustworthy paraphraser, would be conveyed, but there's not even an attempt made at, uh, at saying this sentence has the same words or structure or anything mm -hmm. as the original. Um, so yeah, translators have to pick a philosophy, and you, you can get the idea. I, uh, there would be um, especially those first two, formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence, um, there's pros and cons for sure uh, to, yeah. to both of those. And what we as English readers have to keep in mind is no matter what you do, something is lost in translation. Yeah. And that's one of the benefits of really good, solid preaching. Mm -hmm. it, uh, and uh, if you have a pastor um, or a teacher that you trust, spends a lot of time working in the original language, they will try to accurately uh, convey both the technical word-for-word -word truth as well as the heart of what is being said. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also why in your own study you should uh, be thankful for your English translation while making sure that you learn how to study it a little bit more um, for your, yourself. Yeah, one of the examples that I was reading in an article as I was studying for this was uh, the word, oh, I'm going to butcher it. Maybe you can help. Agape to theu. There we go. Uh, which means in... An English translation, <laughs> the love of God. But as you look 
in the translations that we use, ESV, the love of God, NIV, God's love, another one, love for God, another one, God showed his love, um, you see what you're just talking about as an example. Um, what literally means the love of God was translated here five different times to very similar, very, it still gets the concept, but it uses all of those approaches right. in that. Yeah. And uh, it, it is interesting just the subtle little ways that uh, the theological assumptions of the translators come across. Yeah. So one example would be uh, there, there's various places throughout Paul's letters where he, he uh, refers to his readers. Uh, he, he says that you are called saints. Um, the King James Version um, you are called to be saints, mm-hmm. which uh, there's that undercurrent and there, there is a political motivation there of they, they were wanting to uh, have a well-behaved group of subjects under this king. And so um, there, there's these little insinuations mm-hmm. of uh, you kind of need to behave yourself. Yeah. Uh, same thing, so ESV, that's what I use. Um, ESV, there, there are certain passages that would have a range of possible ways of explaining it. And it does tend to lean more toward it, uh, a reformed soteriology. Well, wow, <laughs> soteriology. Um, of there, there could be a range of possible ways of translating it, and it just tends to skew a little bit more on the quote-unquote Calvinistic side. Mm-hmm. Um, every translation does it. If you care enough to put all the work, it, same thing if you watch documentaries, yeah. you should never think, oh boy, I'm hearing a totally neutral thing. If it's totally neutral, um, they probably didn't... Uh, a, truly neutral person wouldn't care enough to put all that work into doing something. Mm-hmm. So people try to be even-handed, but their theology does tend to come out. Yeah. Uh, so there's the formal equivalence. We're going to be really strict on word for word for word for word. That's why the New American Standard is the most formally equivalent uh, translation we have. And that's why often you're reading it in English and it's like no one speaks like this yeah. and it you have to kind of read it slowly but if you're trying to do in-depth study and you don't know greek it's going to be as close as you can possibly get to the original greek in english mm-hmm. um, so it's really helpful that way dynamic equivalence the best known uh, example that we would have of that would be the niv uh, where you, you really do get the sense of what the author overall was getting at and what his point is, and it come, rolls off the tongue very naturally in the English language, uh, and children can read it, and it, uh, they can learn from it at a pretty early age, mm-hmm. and it's beneficial that way. But for sure, there are moments where to be able to do that uh the translators made decisions that if all you ever did was read your niv bible you wouldn't know the decisions that were made for you Mm -hmm. before you ever get access to it um so so there's all sorts of things that happen behind the scenes 
uh, before they write it down in the NIV and you wouldn't know about it. Mm. Um, so that's, if you read an NIV, that's totally fine. Um, people I know and love very much, uh, hi mom, uh, <laughs> read and uh, benefit greatly from the NIV. Uh, but you just need to be aware that that has happened before you ever saw it. Uh, things were, decisions were made mm -hmm. um, more so than the, the formal equivalents. So uh, one of these concepts um, would, as teams of translators are deciding what to translate, a really interesting example I heard uh, when I was in uh, college, uh, some missionaries, uh, retired missionaries that had gone to a completely unreached people group in Asia, uh, they communicated uh, and shared, you know, here they're trying to translate the Bible for the very first time in, into this language. And they had, they run into this really interesting dilemma of do we translate the exact word that was used in the Greek, even if it conveys something radically different in their language. And the example they gave was, uh, you know, they're in this Asian country where the, the staple, the, the main foundational part of their diet was rice. Mm -hmm. And uh, for dessert, um, the sweet, uh, tasty morsel um, that you may or may not have uh, was bread. So they get to the part where they're translating Christ's statement, I am the bread of life. Uh, for Western civilizations, um, you know, if you remember your food pyramid from elementary school, bread is at the very base of the food pyramid. And so for Jesus' original hearers and for most people in the West, you hear, I am the bread of life, and you go, oh, He's saying that he's the, the absolute basic necessity at the foundation of uh, our life. We need him every day. We need him uh, to nourish us on an ongoing basis. In this uh, Asian country that had no Bible in, in their language, if someone without a teacher were to read, I am the bread of life, it would be... I, I'm that little morsel at the end that you can take it or leave it, um, a little delicacy mm -hmm. um, that perhaps isn't very good for me, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. So uh, they have to make that decision, and I think they ended up deciding to keep it bread and basically uh, convey you need to study. So they these people needed to study and understand, oh, bread here though we think of bread as a dessert that's not what he meant it means rice yeah uh, yeah yeah and so uh and, and i i think that's a very good um principle to to uphold because once you start saying we're we're going to put everything in contemporary terms or or in terms that suit my experience in mm -hmm. my life yeah. you're you're just on a slippery slope and and you want to convey this is about jesus yeah. and his life and his time and we have to 
submit ourselves to that. And who he was speaking to. Yeah. Uh, context, context, context. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, that that's that example that those missionaries shared stuck with me because mm-hmm. that, you know, um, it, it's compelling yeah. to, to think, well, maybe they should have translated it, I am the rice of life. But when you start thinking of the implications of if you change that, then do you do rice for communion? Yeah. And do like, and would that matter? And all like yeah. it, the ripples yeah. go uh, really, really far. And uh, it it kind of got to the heart of it. So the, the first part of this episode was probably a little bit boring and technical. Um, but thank you very much for, for sticking with us. 